huggers, orca lovers, and fans of science-based fact and fact-based reality. I'm Rain Venu, and welcome to a special episode of Scanna. Today's episode, we're looking at the amazing fight to save Scarlet, J50, a three-year-old Southern resident orca who is sick and starving. What's happening here is unprecedented. America's National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, Canada's Department of Fisheries and Oceans, the Lummi Nation, the Whale Sanctuary Project, the Vancouver Aquarium, and so many other groups are working together to try and give this young orca medicine and food. We're also following the continuing tragedy of Taliqua, J35. This is the 20-year-old mom who carried the body of her dead calf above the water for over two weeks. I'm filling in for a regular host, Mark Larry Young, because he's on Saturn Island. He's at East Point on the whale trail where the Southern residents also hang out, talking about J-Pod, Moby Doll, and his book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World. While he was speaking this evening, J-Pod came to visit and say hello for sunset. Because they are amazing. In the past two days, Marcus talked to Ken Balcom, founder of the Center for Whale Research in Washington, and he has attended the virtual press conference with J-50's rescue team. We'll be hearing from Ken Balcom first. Then we'll hit some of the highlights from the NOAA press conference from Friday, August 10th. Scanna is brought to you once a month by all the amazing people who sponsor us via patreon.com. Our plan was to start doing shows twice a month or more. And if you'd like to help us, we're now less than $200 away. But Scarlet and Taliqua's story can't wait. So this episode is brought to you by Scarlet, Taliqua, and the rest of their family at JPod. You know, a lot's happening right now. The whales are coming in, or some of them. I heard that. Are J35 and 50 in the mix? Well, 50 hadn't been seen, but the uh, uh, J35, yeah. Is she still at it? Yeah. Wow. So Ugly. What's your take on that? Can you kind of set up how what it's like to watch this it's extremely distressing not only the watching it but just having to constantly deal with media things that uh you know we got to get the story out about what's happening but it's it's tragic have you ever seen anything like this i mean when we talked i remember we talked on day three and you said ingrid visser had sent you a picture of a whale that had done this for five days and on day three, five days seemed impossible. Yeah, it seemed impossible, but, uh, well, you know, we know that it's happened before, uh, you know, the whales of, and dolphins have pushed dead babies around for, you know, as long as a couple of weeks, but here, you know, we're in day 17 now and this is, you know, what is the message to humans? I, I'm hoping that people are getting it. Are people getting it out there? It sounds like, you know, I've been reading the stuff in the Seattle Times, and it it sounds like this is moving the dial on uh, on Snake River. Is it? Well, it's moving the dial on the attention to the Snake River issue, but the forces there are pretty powerful, and to overcome them, we're going to have to have, you know, not only uh, 
massive public support, but uh, support for our leaders to change it. So what are you asking and telling people to do? Well, I've, the phone numbers are there for uh, our elected officials, you know, on either side of the border here. Uh, uh, our governor in Washington State needs to hear from you. And the, uh, of, you know, anybody that you've elected to office needs to hear from you. You know, let's let's uh, fix the ecosystem here. We're we're losing our icons. Now, what happened with the task force on the first day? Uh, the first day? You mean, you mean just the one that just happened? The one, that, the one that just the happened. First, yeah. Well, uh, it. I think there was a great deal of emotion spread around, and then of course, uh, uh, some of our leadership and bureaucracies are focused on things other than emotion so you know we got their attention but now we need to deal with it in terms of the things that they deal with day to day like you know commerce and business as usual that's what has to change can you talk a bit about j50 and what we're seeing there well, uh, J-50 is just another example in this story of, uh, of starvation and ecosystem collapse, basically. She's, she's not doing well. She's, you know, hopefully everybody hopes that, oh, well, medicine and food will help. But, uh, she, you know, this, this has been, we've been telling this story for, two decades now that uh, it's the ecosystem that has to be restored. And then the whales will have plenty of food, but they're going to go through these episodes of starvation and baby loss and mortality until we solve the ecosystem issue. I was just on the, the NOAA conference call this morning to get up to speed on all this. And one of the things that Re there was a question that was asked they didn't really think there was an answer to, which is why now? We've we've seen these orcas starve. You've, you have been sounding the alarm about this certainly for as long as I've known you, which has been the last few years. Do you think it was J-35 that has... Like, why do you think people are now prepared to intervene for J-50? Well, I think that our NOAA folks are responding to the publicity, the emotion with a, you know, a, a stunt, really. The, uh, uh, all the advice that I heard on the conference call prior to the announcement that they were going to do something was uh, very cautious, you know, that we don't know what she has. Uh, you know, we've waited too long. Uh, we don't know how to uh, actually treat this animal. Uh, and, uh, you know, we don't even know if, if she will take food from humans or a pipe. It's, uh, you know, we're, there are a lot of downsides, and certainly I hope that they're not contemplating capture. Uh, you know, 
maybe if J-50 strands somewhere or accidentally gets caught in a Persane, which uh, incidentally is going on right now on the west side of San Juan Island, and the whales are coming in. She she may just blindly stumble into a net, and maybe we'll have the opportunity to actually get hands on her. But uh, you know, it's that's uh, that's up to the cosmos on how that one's going to turn out. Are you optimistic about this rescue attempt? Uh, well, I don't even know that I would call it a rescue. I think it's a it's a response. Uh, rescue would be something where you really had a decent chance of of uh, intervening somehow and saving this little whale. It's it's a pretty it's a long shot. It's a moonshot, and you know it's it's nice to say, but I'm wondering. Uh, how they're going to overcome all the practical things that were brought up in the conference call. Is there anything that you'd like them to be doing that they're not? For J35 and J50, not? Uh, well, uh, these are just the symptoms of what's wrong. There, you know, there have been dead babies in the past and there will be in the future. And the problem is, uh, you know, there will be no successful reproduction if we don't have a viable ecosystem for them to live in and that's the problem we can't take all the fish ourselves we can't use all the fish habitat for reservoirs and agriculture and human development we've got to leave a significant portion of a natural ecosystem functional and uh, then the whales can survive because they can they can deal with uh our population concentration here, you know, they, they swim past the cities and splash and wave if they're fish to eat, but uh, they won't be here if they don't have anything to eat. You said something in one of the interviews about the number of calves we probably haven't seen in the last three years, that, that there probably have been births where the calf was never spotted, just a whole bunch of stillbirths. Can you talk about that? Well, we know from hormone studies from the SCAT by, by colleagues from the University of Washington and the National Marine Fisheries that uh, we're, we're not seeing 75% of the babies that are conceived. They're lost in pregnancy or near term or even... Uh, perinatal or after they're born or before they swim in here and we get a chance to see them they're, they're dying so yeah it's a high percentage we always knew it was 40% but now it's well in the past three years it's 100% mortality anything else we can do to change that anything that you're else on, on both sides of the border uh well we're uh we're trying in this uh, governor's task force to get that message across to the folks that can pull the plug and remove the dams and hopefully uh the folks on the Canadian side of the border are seeing yeah the freighter system was essential 
to these whales' presence in the Salish Sea, and somehow we let that one go. We better recover it. Can you? Sorry, I missed that last. But the freighter system. The oh, Fraser. Oh, the Fraser system. system. Yeah, the Fraser has collapsed, and you know, I don't. I hate to be critical, but I think that uh, the Canadian Department of Fisheries and Oceans kind of gave up on wild salmon some years ago when they opted for the fish farm option. Uh, and now that's introduced a lethal virus into the wild fish. Good grief. How, how fast do we want our governments to extinct everything here? I mean, that was, uh, that was not uh, responsible. Anything else you want to say? Anything else I should be asking you about? Oh, that's probably bad enough. I, I <laughs> might not be able to cross the border anymore. I hope you can. <laughs> okay. Good luck. Thanks. Keep on doing what you're doing. Take care. All right, Mark. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Our next request from Mark Laren Young of Scana. Your line is open. Hi, thank you for this. I was just wondering, is there any difference in what can be done depending on what side of the what side of the border you're on? Is there any difference in the protocols you're following? So it's it's Andrew Tossa. I'll just talk a little bit about. I mean, there are there are different legislations on both sides of the border that you know in terms of buffers and distances and permits and such. Uh, the permit for the the activity that occurred yesterday. Uh, was issued under uh, both Marine Mammal Regulations and Species Risk Act in Canada, um, and so that activity was was permitted and authorized. Um, if uh, if you know if other activities are going to be uh, proposed in Canadian waters, we'll we'll have to assess those and then again have to permit them under Canadian law for Canadian waters. Uh, it, it is a, it is a completely different set of legislation. I'm sure you can respect between Canada and U.S. But yeah. Um, the key is that the 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 teams are working uh, very closely together in order to try to do the best they can for for the animal, and uh, and so we're we're managing any differences in legislation between the between the uh, uh, agencies uh, or the jurisdictions. Is there sort of a shift in who's in charge depending on what side of the border you're on? I don't think we're in a place of deciding who's in charge. We're really trying to work together from a point from in terms of trying to get uh, uh, an assessment of the animal, as Marty said. And, and uh, uh, I don't think we're going to be worried too much about who's in charge. Cool. This is Lynn. I think it was really uh, wonderful yesterday that those operations were kind of seamless, uh, moving, you know, starting with the whales in Canadian waters and moving into U.S. waters with the, with the team. And it was a transboundary team as well. So I echo all of the um, comments that Marty made about about the participants and, and working together. Thank you. Our next question now from Randy Shore, Vancouver Sun. Your line is open. Hi, uh, Mar Marty. Uh, what specifically did you uh, treat the whale with? Uh, we use a, a, a long-lasting antibiotic called Convenia. 
it's uh, one of the cephalosporins, kind of advanced generation of cephalosporins, which is in a formulation that lasts probably at least seven to ten days. Interesting. And uh, when those uh, when those uh, uh, blow tests come back, what what are some of the specific things that you'll be looking for? The the tests that the blow is sent for essentially look at the um, microflora of 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 the airway. So we're looking for bacteria, fungus um, that would be in the airway and then identifying some that have a potential for being pathogenic as opposed to normal air organisms found in seawater or the airway. Thank you. Our next question, Bellamy Palethorpe, KMKX Public Radio News. Your line is open. Yeah, hi. Um, thanks for the call. I wanted to know, is the, the DART with the antibiotic, is that indeed an unprecedented step? Have we ever done that before, administered these antibiotics to a, a wild animal? It, no, I mean, antibiotics have been given to wild animals before, um, but I do believe this is the first time we've been uh, successful at remotely delivering um, any kind of medication to a killer whale. Um, folks down down in California have delivered medications to, to a gray whale, um, and folks have tried to deliver things to, to right whales at sea as well, but I believe this is the first killer whale, but uh, the NOAA folks can, might be able to correct me there, or DFO. This is Lynn. That's my understanding as well. Okay. And then given that the condition of the whale was maybe better than you expected in terms of her movements anyway and her skin, um, was there any hesitation at all in terms of administering the antibiotic or was it something that you did very quickly because you had the opportunity given the conditions and how skinny she is? That certainly played into it. Um, you know, this was, uh, I think, our first opportunity in at least a week of really, really trying hard to get anywhere near the whale. So so that was a big issue. Um, conditions were quite good and um, and even... Uh, you know, in good conditions, following a whale for you know six hours, there really were only one or two good opportunities to deliver the medication. So, so that factored in a little bit. However, what was also important is that there's there was very little drawback to delivering the antibiotic. There were very few uh, risks uh, to to the animal with with one uh, shot of long-lasting antibiotic. But the potential gain was quite large and and you know unfortunately at this point with a limited um, ability to diagnose the condition of the animal a lot of what we're doing is trying to treat what is treatable treat things that have been the cause of morbidity and mortality in, in whales that are either under human care or, or based on pathology from from stranded killer whales so I, th I think does that kind of make sense on, on why that went ahead uh, yeah, I think so. Um, how long did you observe her before actually managing to shoot that dart? Um, I think at least two hours. About two hours? Yeah, I think so. Thank you. Yeah, because we, we started in Canadian waters, and then, it, yeah, it would, it would have taken us probably two hours to, to, to follow her back into U.S. waters, yeah. Thank you. Our next request now from Anais Elduhaney of Hazaki, Canada. Your line is open, ma'am. Thank you. I was just wondering, what is the Indigenous participation in the pro uh, process? I'm curious about both uh, sides of the border. 
On the U.S. side, we've been uh, keeping in close communication with a number of tribes in the Northwest Indian Fish Commission through our NOAA's tribal liaison. And then in particular, we've been working, uh, the team's been working with the, the Lummi Nation um, in support uh, of the, the preparations to date for the feeding trial. On the Canadian side, I'm not aware of any uh, direct Indigenous participation. I think we're, we're trying our best to keep them informed, but uh, uh, you know, we have been focused on the operation, I would say, rather than uh, uh, information out at this point. Thank you. Thank you. Now, David Malko, CTV News, Vancouver. Your line's open, sir. Thanks, Marty. Just a question for you. You sounded almost, uh, you got rather emotional, it seems. seemed almost surprised when you, when you saw her for the first time in person. Just run me through kind of the thoughts going through your head and how, like, you were having kind of an emotional reaction and the scientific kind of analysis all going on at the same time there. Sure. I think that's probably what I might be known for, getting a little bit emotional about these things. Um, so, you know, as as you know, we've been talking for, for some weeks about this animal, trying to figure out how best we can help her. Um, as a veterinarian, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's um, caring about animals, which is my driver and, and, and the big driver of, of all the folks that have been working so hard to, to come to aid J50. So, um, you know, I think being part of that team um, is is the, an incredibly exciting, emotional thing. Uh, it's it's kind of what I do and and why I do you know what I do is is to come to the aid of of an animal and in particular uh, an endangered species living right in our backyard. I you know it's it's really great to be part of that process. So um, it, you know, without a doubt, there's always some emotional attachment, and I think um, as with you know, everyone, it's, it's as a human, once you've come into contact with that other being, you, you do form a sort of bond and, and your level of, of, of interest and care kind of gets to that next plane. So, yeah, you know, absolutely. You, you read about her, you care about her, you look at her, you advise. Um, but when you actually see her and in her environment and, you know, see this little whale that's Obviously, not not doing as as well as we would like. You know, of course, there's there's an emotional component to that. And just to kind of um, follow up on some of the stuff that's been talked about, I know there's sort of a lot of uncertainty, a lot of next steps, a step by step approach. But if you kind of look ahead, big picture, for people who don't know and live this world all the time. Are we talking about we're going to be talking about this and taking these steps for days, for weeks, for months? What, what big picture? What does all of it tell you so far? Oh boy, you know I I hope we have days and weeks and months to to work on things. Uh, I I am still quite concerned about about her, even given her um, good respirations and and good lo ability to to move and and uh, locomote. Um, so so you know there there is hope there. Um, the difficulty w with dealing with a free-ranging, uh, large marine mammal is, you know, our, our, the lack of ability to do those things that veterinarians really rely on and, and medical people really rely on, those really hands-on diagnostic tests, you know, touching, listening, smelling, as, as you know, the, the base ones, but 
you know, moving quickly into blood work and advanced diagnostics and imaging and endoscopy, ultrasound, um, x-ray, you know, those kinds of things uh, are kind of what most of us rely on to make a, a, a good diagnosis. So, so those limitations are uh, where we have to just sort of keep trying to do the best we can and plan very carefully about next steps for her. So it, it is a process for sure. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Now, Terry Theodore, the Canadian Press. Your line is open, ma'am. Hi, Marty. Um, most of my questions have been uh, answered about the antibiotics, but um, the one thing I wanted to ask is now that you've seen her in person, and we, we see her in pictures and next to her mother, um, how would you assess her size? And do you think that you know she may have been starving for a while? I mean, how long does it take an animal to get to that condition? You've um, got a really uh, a good point. So um, I spoke at length uh, and, and have spoken at length with a number of biologists, uh, including Sheila, who's on the phone here. And, and Sheila, you know, absolutely alerted me to the fact that this has always been a small whale. Um, you know, every time from from the first when she was recognized, she was recognized to be um, shorter and smaller and and then not gaining weight like, like one would expect. However, uh, my feeling is speaking with the researchers and, and looking at the, the objective um, photogrammetry and, and other measurements that we have is that body, that relative body condition has um, kind of uh, gotten worse in, in the last few weeks. But but I might be speaking out of turn, and, and this is exactly the kind of thing that I want to get back onto a conference call with the researchers, with the veterinarians, and I know there's one planned um, later already, to make sure we're all on the same page as to um, how long um, this more accelerated loss of body condition if in fact that's what's going on, how long that has been going on and, and, and work backwards from there. But I, I just want to make sure that, that all the people um, that have been looking at her for so long, um, uh, you, you know, have an opportunity to, to uh, you know, help frame this picture and, and, and give us a good clinical history on her. Hmm. So she's not really the size of a three-and-a-half-year-old. No, um, I'll, I'll let uh, uh, Sheila comment, but I, I would estimate her, uh, you know, as being more like a like a two-year-old. Uh, Sheila, what do you think? Well, I think um, I think John Durbin and and Holly Fernback would have the uh, the length measurements on on this animal and be able to provide the data in relation to animals of the same age class. But I think um, Marty brings up a really really important point is that when we first sighted her um, in June, she she was uh, showing signs of, of what we refer to as peanut head. So basically um, adipose tissue loss to the point where you start to get these shadows and divots behind the skull. And we're not seeing the improvement in that. And in fact, we're likely seeing deterioration as the summer progresses. And in general, we tend to see the whales come in in poorer body condition and improve over the summer. And I think that's one of the things that's most worrisome to me is that not only is she not improving, it looks like she's deteriorating over the period of time when we would expect to see the condition improve. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Lisa Johnson, CBC News, your line is open. Hi, thanks. Uh, now, all of us on the call, I think, know why 
this extraordinary effort is being mounted, but if someone could sort of articulate the big picture of why um, for this one small whale, like what does sort of she mean to the endangered population um, and this group that is struggling? This is Lynn. Uh, I can say that, uh, you know, as a recovery coordinator for NOAA for endangered southern resident killer whales, we've been um, working for you know over a decade to better understand the threats, the issues around uh, is there enough prey for these whales, are there um, vessels sound and disturbance that affects their ability to get the prey that is out there, um, and also the high levels of contaminants and how those can affect the health, particularly if yeah if they're not in in the best condition. And I think this is a, a an opportunity for us to to learn more about this uh, condition of a whale in poor condition and and what might be the contributing factors, and to evaluate um, not only what we can do for the care of J50, but what it can also help us understand in our recovery program for the entire population. And just to put this in, in the context, one of our considerations is, uh, you know, what can we do to, to support J50 in this critical condition, but all the time keeping in mind um, not wanting to cause any impacts or have any effect uh, on the population on her family group, um, and she's she's a she's a young female, um, an important member. Perhaps if we if we see her improve at some point, um, to contribute to reproduction and growth of the population in the future. So um, yeah, it's an important effort and part of a, a, a much bigger picture. Is the hope that she would be. Um sort of a success story in the way that Springer was that we talked about yesterday, who, you know, go, went on to, to I think, at least have one calf. I'm not sure Springer's condition now. Oh, Springer has had two calves uh, since since that um, rescue and reintroduction to her family group uh, and was a, a great success. And, again, not just, um, not just for that one individual whale that was alone and um, – potentially in poor health and, you know, separated from her social group. Um, and it was, you know, a success to, to bring her back to her population and her family, but also now uh, that she's contributed to population growth for the northern resident killer whale community, that's also, um, you know, listed as threatened under the Species at Risk Act in Canada. So, yeah, we'd love to have another, another success story and someday see J50 Scarlet uh, contribute to population growth for the southern residents. So our last question. Our last is from Linda Mates, Seattle Times. Your line is open, ma'am. Thank you. I'd like to know about J35. Um, what's her present status? How is she doing? Is she still carrying the cat? Thank you. I can give one brief update. Is, uh, the DFO team did encounter J35. Uh, off of Souk, and she um, she did indeed still have the calf yesterday, uh, yesterday afternoon. Thank you. Thanks for checking out Scanna. I'm Rain Benu, producer of the Scanna podcast. If you like what we do, please spread the word, sign up for a newsletter, and subscribe. 
If it's not your cup of tea, then I'm Tim Ferriss from The Tim Ferriss Show. And please call, mail, email, and tweet Washington Governor Jay Inslee and Washington Senator Patty Murphy and tell them to breach the Snake River Dam and save the Chinook to save these amazing orcas. We'd like to end off this episode with the world broadcast premiere of a new song by author, poet, and ocean lover, Pauline LaBelle. When I heard this today, it made me cry. Check out her book, Whale in the Door, A Community Unites to Protect BC's House Sound. I also want to send a shout out to all of the artists who've been touched by Taliqua's story and are sharing work about her with your communities online and in person. Thanks for helping to keep her story alive for all of us. She's an amazing person, and it's the least we can do while we work to find answers. If you have work you want to share, let us know, and we'll consider it for a podcast or online. As Ken Balcom has pointed out, Telequa is speaking to us. The greatest tragedy of all this will be if Telequa holds her baby up to us, has spoken directly to us, and we hear nothing. Dr. Seuss would probably say we need to be a little more like Horton, with the Who's. Human animals make such a fuss in our fiction about the search for intelligent life. We place so many limits on that life and what form it may take. It has to be from the sky, the stars. If it's a mammal or any of the up the billions of living creatures on our little planet, it isn't real. We're not even allowed to acknowledge that we are like other species of animal here. Scientists get testy. If intelligent life appears directly in front of our cameras, holding a dead baby for days at a time, up for us to see, a baby we are responsible for killing, we say, oh, how sad for the whale. And then we go on with our lives, even knowing that this creature has a bigger, more complex brain than ours, families, multiple languages, complex culture, social rituals that span the world, we still assume that this fully sentient species is not aware enough to know what is happening to them, who's responsible for it, or we refuse to see the significance of them communicating directly with us as a species. Meanwhile, future generations, (laughs) if we survive this crazy road trip, are going to look at us like we're idiots. Yeah, for a lot of things, but because we literally slept through the first contact with another sentient species and continued to argue about Kim Kardashian. Yeah, for the record, she probably is anorexic, but I'm way more worried about Scarlet, the three-year-old baby orca who's currently starving to death in the Salish Sea. Starving is a bad look for people and whales, but people aren't currently endangered, nor, to my understanding, are Kardashians. Everyone Thank you for all you're doing. It really matters. We can't help the Southern residents. I know there'll be some really dark moments in the next week, never mind in the next few years. But helping these orcas is about more than one endangered species. Helping them ultimately helps the oceans and helps us because we're all connected. Keep calling, keep doing whatever you can do every day. And please keep caring. Here's Pauline LaBelle. That's the sound we usually hear in the Salish Sea when the orcas are near. 
as they come up for air. It's a thrill for everyone. These past couple of weeks, we've been hearing a different sound. I'm sure many of you have seen in the news about the Mother Orca in J-Pod. That's the pod of southern resident orcas who spend most of their time in the Salish Sea. They call her J-35 or Talakwa. Talakwa. On July 24th, Talakwa gave birth to a baby girl, the first live baby born in three years. There was no time to name the baby. She died soon after. And many of you might have heard Talakwa's cries of grief as she carried her dead baby on her forehead, all the way from Victoria to the San Juan Islands. There's crying in the Salish Sea. I hear crying in the Salish Sea. Talakwa, Talakwa, my heart goes out to you. Talakwa, Talakwa, my heart is breaking too. There's crying in the Salish Sea. I hear her crying in the Salish Sea. Talakwa, Talakwa, what are you telling us? Talakwa, Talakwa, orca free and wild, as you swim through the waters, holding your dead child. There's crying in the Salish Sea. I hear you crying in the Salish Sea. Talakwa, Talakwa, how can we ease your sorrow? Talakwa, Talakwa, how can we offer you a better tomorrow? There's crying in the Salish Sea. I hear crying in the Salish Sea. All is not well in the Salish Sea. Will we listen? Will we listen? Will we change? We will never have this chance again. Talakwa is in mourning. Her journey, a funeral, a protest. The orcas are swimming in a Salish sea full of sewage, garbage, plastic, toxins from agriculture and industry of every kind. They are disturbed by the noise and presence of ships. They are starving from a lack of Chinook salmon. Let the rivers run free. Take down the dams. Keep the tankers away. If the rivers recover, the Chinook will recover. And the orcas, the yoyos, may recover. Thank you for writing your letters. Thank you for making a difference. Talakwa and her family are counting on you. Her mother, Princess Angelina. Her sister, Kiki. Her son, Notch, eight years old. Her niece, Star. Her nephew, Moby. They are all counting on you.